0: speaker in the Walter E. Edge Lecture Series in Public Affairs. Russell Baker has amused all of us for 36 years as the writer of the nationally syndicated column Observer. His last column in the New York Times appeared on Christmas Day in 1998. Among his many honors... He has been awarded the Pulitzer Prize twice, once for his column and once for his memoir entitled Growing Up. He's also the author or editor of 15 other books and uh, has served for many years as the host of the PBS program Masterpiece Theater. Marcel Proust once said that a writer's life can be seen as preparation for his vocation. In that connection, Russell Baker has written, and I quote, if you're destined to have a not very interesting life, and Baker goes on to write, I think, inaccurately, and I was so destined, the next best thing if you're going to be a writer is to have a huge family. It gives you a chance to learn a lot about humanity from close-up observation. Writers, Baker says, have to cultivate the habit of listening to other people other than themselves. And if you're born into a big family as I was, you might as well learn to listen because they're not going to give you much chance to talk. (laughs) Russell Baker started writing at the age of eight. His first professional job was as a crime reporter for the Baltimore Sun in 1947. He joined the New York Times in the late 1950s and began writing his Observer column in 1962. Russell is fond of quoting my economist colleague John Kenneth Galbraith who wrote, a columnist is a man obliged to find significance three times a week in events of absolutely no consequence. (laughs) Well, for over 40 years, Russell Baker has not only found significance in events both of consequence and inconsequence, but has done so with grace and extraordinary humor. He's written in a down-to-earth manner, perhaps somewhat tougher than Garrison Keillor, but gentler than H.L. Mencken. His laughs have been rooted in the Southern folk tradition, the garrulous culture of extended uh, families, and especially his experience in growing up in poverty during the Great Depression when the Baker family had to rely on the kindness of sometimes gently eccentric relatives. One memorable Russell Baker column poked fun at New York yuppies buying wine at $2,000 a bottle. Baker wrote, the problem is that the Great Depression is lodged in my bones. It has crippled my ability to find happiness in this era of excess galore. It's left me with a stunned sense of values. I still stoop to pick up pennies. We're not talking cheapskate here, he writes. We're talking a psyche so warped by the Depression that it's probably unfit to be allowed out in today's economy. (laughs) Well, it's an absolute honor for me to be able to say that Russell Baker is not only fit to be allowed out, but has also graced us here in Princeton with his presence tonight. And perhaps the best way to introduce him is to quote the words of CBS curmudgeon uh, Andy Rooney after Russell Baker wrote his last column. Rooney said, and I quote, Russell Baker was just the best there is. This evening he'll talk about the age of the superstory.
1: Thank you, Professor Malkiel. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been given the night off by Charles Dickens, (laughs) and my subject tonight is the high price of prescription pills. I anticipate there will be a few academics here tonight. I hope not too many because I'm going to uh, speak uh, the rhetoric of the old newspaper columnist. And I know about uh, the academic attitude toward precision. (laughs) Uh, I speak uh, out of a tradition in which the chief rhetorical devices are the unverifiable assertion the outrageous generalization, contempt for the inconvenient fact, unconcealed bias, shameless egotism, and unmitigated gall. So uh, I assume that when I finish uh, those person's here who are accustomed to the academic life are going to observe that uh, I haven't had anything of consequence to say. And uh, as you've just heard, uh, that conforms to John Kenneth Galbraith's definition of what a columnist must do. Uh, Murray Kempton, himself a wonderful columnist, had another definition of the columnist. He said he's a man who crawls out of the trenches when the battle is over walks down across the battlefield and shoots the wounded (laughs) I have done that in my time every columnist does necessarily because you have to write uh, on a schedule and for weeks there's nothing to say so it's, uh, you wind up by uh, getting churlish and uh, saying unpleasant things about nice people. Uh, my subject tonight is not, I'm not going to talk about uh, those guys. Uh, my subject is the isness of media. Uh, captious uh, pedants uh, among you are going to say that media is, you can only say the media are. and my thesis is the media really is (laughs) the media are suggests that uh, it is a uh, scattered collection of menaces to the society Uh, I say no the media is a single force composed of many parts and uh, It's something that's fairly new in our lifetime, certainly is new in mine. The reality is that it's beginning to shape the American mind and, in some instances, to control it. You notice I'm beginning to bend to the left here. That signifies that I come from the liberal media, the liberal left-leaning media. Uh, most people think of the media these days only as a uh, as an evil force composed on one hand of television, news people, and on the other as press people. And uh, that's a completely misleading way to think of it, but it's very common. Uh, I asked my wife uh, before I decided what to speak about here tonight. I said, when I say the word media, what do you think of? Could you do an association? And she said, arrogant, pompous, opinionated. And I suspect that's a fairly uh, representative uh, response to what people think of when they think of media people. It's the thing they love to hate. I know that uh, I'm fascinated by the number of stories I see in the paper where something uh, unpleasant has happened and it's uh, described as the media's fault. The media's blamed for it, and the media did it. It reminds me of those old movies they used to make when I was a kid, uh, murder mysteries in which they uh, always had an English flavor. The uh, butler appeared and said, uh, there is a corpse in the library and you sat through the movie, and it always turned out the butler did it. The butler did it. Uh, these days, it's the media that did it. And I was uh, began to be appalled back in the 70s when I heard myself described as a member of the media. I felt degraded, debased. I would never thought of myself as media. I think if I had... Uh, uh, plan. If I had known when I was a child that I was going to grow up to be a, a part of the media, I would have done something sensible and gone into investment banking. <laughs> but I went into the, uh, I became part of the press. And uh, when I went in, uh, uh, the press had nothing to do with the media. It was an altogether different thing. Uh, when I was, uh, uh, When I was very young, I uh, became a newspaper reporter, and I pursued facts with a childlike faith that facts and truth were the same thing. Uh, it now occurs to me as the older and older I get, there may not be any truth of any variety. But at that time, I thought if you assembled enough facts, you'd get the truth. And that's, I was a truth seeker, as you are, tend to be when you're young. Like most reporters of that age, uh, I was terribly underpaid. Uh, This didn't stop me from becoming a uh, copious imbiber of strong drink, nor from smoking two packs of cigarettes per day. Um, In those days, reporters were expected to indulge in those vices, they were the marks that you were a reporter. It's like a hat fedora with a sweaty hat uh, band and a press card stuck out of it. You smoked and you drank. And everybody did. Of course, Americans in that time didn't cling so uh, fastidiously to the delusion that they can outwit death as they do today. <laughs> the health club and cholesterol were still years in the future. Nobody did. Moreover, uh, America just won World War II on whiskey and cigarettes. Nowadays, I guess they'd have to do it on white wine spritzers. <laughs> In Omaha Beach would be a smoke free zone. <laughs> but at that time, if you were a reporter, you were expected to reek of gin and unfiltered cigarettes. Not to mention uh, police stations, six alarm fires and the morgue. You weren't likely to be persona grata with the swells uptown. And certainly not likely to marry their daughter. If you were a woman, and if you were women in those days, you were even less likely to marry their son. Uh, Reporters didn't live uptown with the swells in those days as they do now in uh, Washington. Didn't play golf with them, lunch with them at the club. My own neighborhood was a pretty good example of where the uh, reporters of the era came from. I lived next door to a cop. There was a fireman across the street. And the most uh, important, the most awesome figure in the neighborhood worked at City Hall as a doorman. It was a uh, working class, middle class neighborhood. And that's where reporters came from. Um, There was a sense that the reporter was part of the community, which uh, we've lost to a great extent. Now the reporter has become a kind of elite figure, which also has something to do with the resentment of the media, I think. well, the life was the income was paltry, but it was a wonderful life. It was a young man's dream of paradise. Uh, you were obliged to lick no man's boots, except maybe the publishers. Uh, you could sass the mayor and the police chief, and you had the freedom as great metropolis to roam as you would all through the night. And as you roamed, you acquired a kind of knowledge of the world that was unobtainable on any university campus. I learned, for example, that the uh, strip teasers who dance with boa constrictors use scotch tape to prevent their scaly partners from opening their mouths. The SPCA doesn't like that. And uh, it's interesting to see an SPCA, see a strip teaser and a snake in a police court for cruelty to snakes. <laughs> I learned that a reporter never becomes emotionally involved in a story, no matter how racking, how, much, how carried away a normal, sensible person would get. That if, you, uh, if you had to go cover a hanging, for example, you didn't make fuss about it. The approved approach for the reporter who had covered was to come in and ask the editor, uh, do, you, do you want a feature or a straight news story? That was considered uh, the height of wit. <laughs> But this delightful uh, life was accompanied and supported, in spite of the lack of money, by the sense that you were doing some kind of public service, that you were doing something that was valuable to humanity, of uh, small perhaps, but important. You were seeking truth. And the importance of the reporter was officially certified by the Constitution of the United States with its famous Fifth First Amendment. We know we've heard so much about the First Amendment, the uh, press beginning to turn the public off on it. But uh, there was an awareness that you were somebody special, that you were given a special license to do things that normal people wouldn't be interested in doing. And you did them, though they were often unpleasant. The romance of the life was constantly celebrated by movies. Clark Gable, James Stewart, Spencer Tracy, they were always playing newspaper reporters, uh, doing dashing things. And, uh, and so it had a glamour that it doesn't have now. I said, notice the movies nowadays, the reporter is usually the villain. There were real life heroes uh, beyond the movies who could be even more thrilling than the than the uh, movie characters. Uh, well, I must confess uh, the idea of Clark Gable carrying Claudette Colbert away on a greyhound bus was hard to top <laughs> but there was uh, one of my favorites was a uh, a foreign correspondent for the herald uh, for the Chicago Tribune named Floyd Gibbons, the ultimate in foreign correspondent Dash he had an eye patch uh, most romantic thing you, you could wear uh, and uh, he it was, he hadn't got it so romantically. he'd had his eyes shot out in the Battle of Bellow Wood covering for the Chicago Tribune but it was wonderful that eye patch to see his picture with his column a man with an eye patch that it showed you possibilities of glamour in the world. And once uh, 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 Gibbons uh, was in person, uh, he got a cable from an editor, and I, I love this cable so much, I quote it to you. The assignment came from Chicago. It said, Organize and equip a camel caravan and cross the Sahara Desert in order to obtain a true picture of sheikhs and their appeal to Anglo-Saxon and American women. (laughs) It was the age of Rudolph Valentino and uh, (coughs) Gibbons was assigned to check out uh, the Sahara Desert to see if real sheikhs were carrying on like Valentino sweeping American Ladies off their camels and carrying them away to his tent. And he went and did it. He organized and outfitted a, a camel caravan on the expense account. <laughs> <laughs> he, he wound up rather well to do, I should say. That's <laughs> surprising. But this was the life you dreamed of living after you'd become a great foreign correspondent. You, you you, know, you were going to knock around the world wearing a trench coat and drinking that gin and uh, being glamorous. Nowadays, uh, I think young reporters uh, seem to dream of more uh, dull political deeds of glory than they did at that time. Uh, the big, the big dream seems to be to give their comeuppance to some unworthy public servant, getting him kicked out of office, preferably the president. But I, uh, what I've been discussing here was uh, what it was like to be a reporter long before uh, reporters became hanging judges, and more famous than the people they covered. At some point, I think in the uh, early, in the mid 1960s, uh, reporters, certain reporters on television became so famous they couldn't work anymore. Uh, Walter Cronkite and, uh, uh, couldn't cover the story. He had to sit in a sealed booth at the political convention and uh, talk to other reporters around the hall. Because if Cronkite went out into the convention hall, everybody in the hall would turn and descend on Cronkite. He was the star. He was a bigger star than anybody running for president. And that uh, made it hard to <laughs> hard to work. In the Times, uh, Scotty Reston, when I was down there in the Washington Bureau, used to tell his people, if you're not having fun, You're in the wrong business, and he was right, because there was no other reason to be in journalism at that time. But that's all changed. All changed now. Nowadays, a young person coming into journalism can reasonably entertain prospects of perhaps becoming a millionaire and uh, possibly even a celebrity. Washington now is uh, full of uh, press people who are celebrities. I only need mention uh, uh, Cokie and Sam. See, Cokie has a book uh, selling uh, great guns. Uh, and you, nobody buys books by real people. You buy books by celebrities these days. But this comes about really because the press is, has been transformed into part of this monstrous uh, media organism, churns out, just grinds out uh, celebrities like sausages. A lot of the uh, whole media operation has to do with uh, creating celebrities. uh, I think I should point out the point of media, really. Media comes from an old uh, advertising term. When I was in college back in the 40s, the business students took a course called media, which dealt with how you placed their advertising. The media were the, they were billboards, uh, radio, newspapers, magazines. Those were media, but it was about advertising. And media today is still about advertising. It's an instrument for selling through which you sell a product. It has nothing to do with news. The uh, uh, newspapers were a a medium. They carried advertising. But the uh, newspaper was unique in that it attracted readers who would read the advertisement. It attracted them by conveying news. The other forms of media are basically entertainment. They provide entertainment and attract uh, audiences that will uh, place your, buy your goods. And they attract huge audiences, obviously, uh, particularly television. Uh, so do we have to make that distinction with the press, with the news, the news media. And this is a problem that television has had because television, of course, is an entertainment medium. No matter how serious they've been in the past about, uh, about news, and they were at one time extremely good, uh, back in the age of Murrow and uh, maybe 15 years afterwards, there were some wonderful television reporters and good television news operations on the networks but they're uh, gone you know they 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 didn't make money and they're now being dismantled Uh, what we get now on the evening news is a a very thin imitation of what we used to get from the network uh, news media well it's sort of interesting i think that when press people were just plain reporters and editors uh, they enjoyed a certain admiration uh, in this country and uh, it's notable now that there's an extensive public hostility that comes their way Um, and this I think comes partly because the news people both press and television have gotten themselves involved too deeply in the entertainment aspect of the business Um, there's every weekend, I don't know if any of you watch these talk shows out of Washington on the weekend that feature what Bud Trillin has called the Sabbath gas bags Uh, these are for the most part uh, reporters, people who are licensed reporters Uh, most of them former honest press people and they sit on these panels and whatever the problem they're never at a loss for a solution a prediction advice about who should resign who should be indicted who ought to get divorced get a haircut, whatever <laughs> they sit there uh, all weekend and they pour out this advice You know, that's not reporting they tell you what the president should have done Tell you what the president should do next week. They tell you why who's a bum and why. They're passing judgments. It's, uh, and, uh, and making predictions. Who can forget Sam Donaldson's prediction at the time Monica Lewinsky appeared on the horizon that Clinton would be out of office within the week? Well... It's it's the it's the turning into entertainment. I mean, I say in some sense that's what I'm doing here tonight. Fortunately, I'm not very entertaining. <laughs> but it's this urge to be an entertainer. And why do they do this? Because there's money there. The money is very big in television for these people. They uh, who do the weekend shows. Uh, if they uh, they get a reputation, uh, their lecture fees go up. uh, You're looking at people who are making a million dollars a year, many of them, just from dilating, bloviating into the camera, and uh, it doesn't seem to have much to do with the news anymore. It has to do with, with selling something on television. Well, what are, uh, what are the other forms? What are these other forms of media that we really ought to be worrying more about? Uh, well, there's the Internet. Any idiot uh, who can handle a keyboard now has the power to take an utterly absurd rumor and send it around the world faster than you can say megahertz. And it will be picked up and circulated, and papers will publish it. This rumor is in circulation. And you say, why did you print that? Without bothering to confirm it, they say, it's out there. It's the new thing you hear from everybody, it's out there. It's like that, the thing. There used to be the song, the thing was at the door, you know, it's out there. So they're publishing uh, rumors now. It's a uh, score one for chaos. And what about the grocery tabloids? We all read the grocery tabloids, I guess. Immense readership. And without them, how would we ever know... Uh, what celebrities overweight? <laughs> Bob Hope's suffering from Scotch Dutch Elm Disease or something. <laughs> Have I mentioned People magazine? And all the celebrity spin-off books. Churning out a thousand new celebrities every week. Thousands and thousands of new celebrities every year you've got to keep up with i'm you know i can 't keep up with the celebrities they come at me so fast. I was in a, a grocery line a uh, summer or two ago with a friend of mine who's getting on he 's in his eighties and i 'm well into my seventies and I picked up people off the rack while we were waiting to check out and i said, uh, uh, "Do you ever read this magazine i said i don 't know anybody who's who 's in here." And he said, I haven't known for years who any of those people are. <laughs> and he said, and what's more, I don't care. <laughs> so you've reached a kind of glut, a celebrity glut. And the, the, the consequence of this is you've got to keep producing celebrities faster and faster, so hoping you'll come up with one that people do care about. Uh, and so we have all this nonsense that creeps into the public discourse. Uh, Who's having a baby out of wedlock? They're all having babies out of wedlock. I mean, that's, they do that the way I used to smoke and drink gin. <laughs> Wrecking their Maseratis, uh, wowing the critics with a new TV series, and so on. Now, we mustn't overlook a Mad Dog Talk Radio. poisoning the air full of political partisans, crackpots well poisoners, everybody hyperventilating on the radio all morning then there's shock jock radio they talk a little raunchy you gotta know the Howard Stern you know know the problem about his reproductive organ that's in the public domain. Thanks to Howard himself. Uh, then there's Gordon Liddy. He's got a very influential show. He's on radio every morning. Do You remember Liddy? Anybody here old enough to remember Watergate? Liddy is the guy who told the uh, Republican National Committee if they wanted to kill him, he'd be waiting on, standing on a street corner at a given hour <laughs> when they drove by, he'd be standing there waiting for the bullets. Well he's now on the radio. <laughs> then there's Oprah, Oprah and uh, selling books, and Montell. not sure what Montel said. Judge Judy dispenses justice in the afternoon. Laura Schlesinger, she's uh, giving the uh, gays hell, getting everybody whipped up about the corruption of homosexual life. I mean, we're talking mass hysteria here. And that's what media gives us. I haven't even got to the telephone yet. (laughs) Telemarketing, cell phone. The Palm Pilot, billboards, junk mail, lapel buttons, hundreds of thousands of television commercials. They wash over you day after day after day after day. Well, my point, uh, I must repeat it. Somebody once said when you talk, you must tell people what you're going to tell them. Then you tell them, and then you tell them what you've told them. (laughs) What I'm telling you is that the media is. The media not are, media is. And what it is, is a powerful force as pervasive as the air we breathe. And there's no way of escaping it. It's like... uh, like we're living with an army of occupation. There's no getting out of it. You have to learn to cope with it. Now, I remember, I'm old enough to remember, when radio was exciting, there was a wonderful show I was very fond of called The Shadow. The Shadow had the magnificent voice of Orson Welles. He was the shadow. And he always said... Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? Then he'd laugh. (laughs) Then he'd say, the shadow knows. The shadow had the power to cloud men's minds. The media has gone beyond the shadow. They're blasting men's minds. And it's very effective. It's very hard to uh, keep your wits about you when the noise uh, gets higher and higher and higher and higher. And that's, effect, in effect, what the media is doing to us. Well, it's certainly done considerable damage to press and TV and news, as I said. Um, they've undergone some serious changes because of media. Uh, um, well, for one thing, there's the, the major networks are now almost all, they're owned by a few giant conglomerates. Walt Disney, Mickey Mouse, GE, Time Warner, AOL, Rupert Murdoch. Uh, these people are, these are not institutions or people who have the least interest in the news. Uh, in fact, the news, uh, the ownership of networks, is a minor part of their uh, of their holding companies. Uh, all that matters to them is that the news operation uh, uh, show a little profit. Did it not go in the tank? And accordingly, uh, the, the networks have pretty much dismantled their network news divisions. Uh, Make a note, any time you see a foreign correspondent uh, covering a story uh, uh, employed by CBS, NBC, or ABC, poor Jim Wooten of ABC seems to be the only foreign correspondent left in the world. He's everywhere. He's in Kosovo. He's in Northern Ireland. He's in Bangkok. And he's losing weight. He looks terrible. But he says it's as though Jim is covering the whole world for television. That's all there is. An extraordinary thing has happened in Washington with news coverage. That is, nobody covers the Congress anymore. The Congress doesn't lend itself to television coverage. Uh, the presidency is a magnificent for, uh, thing to for a story for the TV to cover, because it's, it can be a sitcom, it's a family drama, it can be a comedy, but it's about one man in one place. Uh, and his family, and as we've seen recently, and uh, uh, his uh, peccadilloes. Uh, so it, if you watch Washington coverage, you'll see almost every night the lead from Washington will deal with the president. The president did this, the president went there, the night he's in Sharm sheik I see. Um, the president, it's easy to cover the president, and people all know who the president is. And he's got this huge public relations apparatus to uh, make it easy to cover him. And everything is laid on. It's very easy for the press to travel with him and do this. Um, But the uh, the story in Washington, uh, a large part of the story is about the Congress. You know, government is about who gets the money. And the president doesn't decide that, despite what you hear Bush and uh, And Gore saying, the money is, uh, those deals are all worked out in the Congress. And it's it's a labyrinthine, Byzantine process, extremely complicated, negotiated uh, among people, uh, uh, several dozen people uh, that nobody's ever heard of for the most part, because uh, the news doesn't cover them anymore. You can't make... A good story out of the Congress. That's where your mom, They're the ones that are going to dispose of the tax issue that these two guys are arguing about. Uh, when it's all over, they'll settle that. But uh, nobody, nobody knows who they are. They're not covered. It's so much more fun to go up and cover the White House. It's so much easier. It's so much more theatrical, telegenic, and uh, so that's been a. Uh, one of the the worst uh, worst results for the press of the triumph of uh, media uh, media coverage of washington, another one of course is isolationism we 're a very isolated country now in terms of knowing what or even being interested much in what goes on in the rest of the world inside the middle east uh, uh, but uh, there 's hardly ever a story from uh, India unless they get the atom bomb uh, there's no running uh, store, there's no running coverage of Europe uh, most people nowadays couldn't tell you who the president of France is what the government of Italy is up to even England aside from the royal family gets very little coverage anymore everything is, is viewed from an American angle uh, if it's not American it doesn't get much play so we're, be- we become a very, we're becoming a very isolated uh, people in the, not isolated, but an isolationist people in that our view of the world tends to be uh, awfully uh, provincially uh, American. Now, I wanted to talk about the super story. That's a, that's a word coined by Howard Kurtz, a media critic of the Washington Post, And uh, it's the inevitable result of this triumph of the advertising media over the news industry. Uh, The super story is basically, it's the descendant of the old-fashioned gossip item. It's a story that doesn't amount to much in the great scheme of things, but generates a terrific amount of racket. Uh, media America requires a deafening volume of racket at all times, as I've said. Since media's aim is to uh, control minds, it's, it begins by softening you up with this barrage of, uh, of uh, the kind of junk I've been describing to you. And you, uh, you pour it on heavily and noisily, and it, makes, it becomes very hard to think clearly. You don't, after a while, you're know, not even clear what you ought to be thinking about. What's worth thinking about? Uh, well, the first-rate media story, it's got to provide fodder for every facet of media, not just the television and the papers, but it's got to have jokes for Leno and Letterman and Saturday Night Live. Super story, does that. it? I mean, there are great stories. In uh, the 50 years I covered Washington, there are many great stories. The greatest story, uh, of course, was the uh, Cold War, which was a question of whether we and the Soviet Union, these two terrifying powers with the ability to, to destroy each other, terrified of each other, wondering which one might strike first. That went on for all those years' a great story It was the real thing it wasn't by George lucas a great story, but it didn't provide jokes for the late night show jay leno it didn't there weren't a lot of jokes about the, the cold war it's got to provide uh, the super story it's got to provide uh, Openings for uh, opportunities for internet adventurers to produce uh, uh, unverifiable rumors. The classic case being uh, our friend, uh, what's his name, Mimi, Matt Drudge, Matt Drudge. Um, and you—you you turn it. You pronounce yourself the ultimate authority on the real inside dirt. And you come, get on my website, and I'll tell you, and you circulate this stuff. That's, but you've got to have a good, a good super story to do that. Matt drudge can't flourish in the age of the, with the Berlin crisis. But it doesn't work that way. There's got to be, of course, material for the grocery tabloids. What was Bill Clinton's mother like, really? revive Jennifer Flowers bimbos bimbos and Bill's past wonderful stuff for the grocery tabs and that's what a super story does for you Um, and of course it inspires frothing rage for people who call in the talk radio shows everybody's got an opinion and the most outrageous sort it's wonderful I mean, the uh, during the Monica story, uh, super, super story, the uh, radio went day and night for years with the people calling in, uh, fighting each other, coming to blows. Were you for Bill? Were you from Monica? What about the country? What about the decline of the moral, the rot in the moral fabric, and all that? And it went on and on and on in the radio, day and night. I reached the stage where uh, I seem to have Rush Limbaugh permanently in my back seat of my car every time I go. <laughs> so it feeds, it feeds all this. And of course, it's got to provide grist for these. Uh, we now have all these cable uh, TV channels that are fairly new and they have round the clock. They go round the clock and they've got to have something to fill that time with. There isn't that much going on in the world, uh, and at least that much that interests people. There's an awful lot going on. I mean, we could, uh, they could send somebody over and uh, have a look at the, uh, uh, look at the uh, situation in uh, India between the Pakistanis and the Indians. That would be nice, but uh, who's going uh, <laughs> to, who's going to pay for it? It's expensive, first of all, that kind of coverage. Secondly, it's cheaper to pay a guy to sit up there and excite people to call in, to say outrageous things, and you'll call in and abuse him. Uh, that's, uh, you can do that with a good superstar. You've got to have a good, uh, good exciting story of that sort. Well, and of course, they grind out a hit record or two. I think Elton John had a success with Princess Diana's uh, funeral song, and, of course, books. Oh Lord, their super story is wonderful for the book publishing industry. I don't know how many books were spun out of the O J. Simpson story. The lawyers each wrote a book. Uh, the detective wrote a book. The relatives of uh, Nicole wrote a book. Uh, it was a book a week hitting the uh, hitting the bookshops. You wouldn't have had that with a serious story. And people could sit all day by the TV and watch. uh, People, have a me (laughs) sit there and watch that watch Johnny Cochran. He created a character, you know. And Johnny Cochran, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. It doesn't fit, you must acquit. (laughs) Uh, It has nothing, nothing to do with what's going on in the world. (laughs) It's it's absurd. Well, the consequence of this is, is, or it's implicit in what I've been saying, is that the conventional press and television have a terrible problem as a result of this. Uh, They don't know how to cover this kind of stuff. If they don't cover it, they're left looking like stuffy old fuddy-duddies who can't keep with what's going on in America. And uh, they don't want to give up completely. There are now, uh, the press is feeling, uh, (laughs) it feels, they're always wondering if anybody's still reading the paper. Anyhow, if you throw away the super story audience, uh, what do you do? So, uh, although what they know how to do is cover budgets, foreign affairs, and politics, so they get in, you go in and somebody's got to go do it. They get an investigative reporter, go dig out the Dig out the facts. They spend a lot of money. This guy, uh, they, he's spent a lot of time digging, 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 and of course he's coming up. He's come up with something probably highly speculative. Probably shouldn't be run because they can't really nail it down. But they spent so much money on it that they've got to run it anyhow or the auditor will say why are we spending all this money on investigative reporting and not getting any results so that's one of the products that comes out of it and finally they wind up they've they've got to compete it's a jungle out there they've got to compete so they they hold their nose and jump in and uh you get very... It's kind of funny, actually, to see kind of old family newspapers. There used to be you couldn't use certain words in the paper. I remember uh, <laughs> you, you didn't use strong language in the New York Times when I first went there. It was a family newspaper. they say, people are going to be reading this at breakfast. You can't use a four-letter language, even a four-letter word, even if the man said it. So uh, suddenly, uh, here you had a situation where you were authorized to write words like uh, oral sex, semen-stained dress. That was a lot of fun. You'd never been able to write like that before in a newspaper. And uh, everybody uh, did it. Did a lot of it. But then something even stranger happened. That is, the press. The press, my people, became morally outraged at the president's conduct. Now, I thought my own opinions on the president's conduct were it was not noble. (laughs) uh, But I thought it reminded me immediately of a, it seemed to me like a uh, Moliere plot. It was basically the Lord, the man of the house, and the French maids—that old story—that Molière would have had a wonderful time with in his time. But we uh, typically Americans always revert to uh, 17th-century Puritanism, and the press lurched back into it, and they condemned uh, Clinton. And it wasn't enough to criticize him for playing a fool, for making an ass of himself. Uh, for misbehaving uh, for, uh, even for uh, embarrassing uh, all, treating his family that way all of that but they had to haul him into church and uh, abuse him and say uh, his moral rot is so advanced that uh, many of them said he must resign for the good of the country tremendous amount of sentiment in the press urging his resignation. Well, uh, we, we know what Clinton did. He wasn't going to resign. He'd run for a third term if he thought it was possible. Uh, he wasn't going to resign, and uh, he didn't. He looked at the polls. They always look at the polls. He looked at the polls and saw, well, people didn't really approve of it. But they liked, uh, on balance, they would rather have him for president than Al Gore, which was the choice at the time. <laughs> and anyhow, it was—it uh, in a way, it solved some problems for him to stay on. But the, what, then the press got very shirty about, about the public's refusal to join it in condemning the president. And the press wound up in a curious position of denouncing the public. (laughs) Really, they didn't, uh, they just disapproved. They thought it was dreadful the way the public was behaving. It wasn't living up to the standards of the press. (laughs) You know, it's it's not a group of people who are uh, notorious uh, for being strangers to sin themselves. Well, uh, that's where we are. Uh, We've had a respite in super stories, fortunately. I can't believe it'll last long. Something absolutely mind-boggling is about to happen. may have happened uh, while we've been sitting in here. Who knows? (laughs) I mean, um, but you, uh, meantime, you've got this immense uh, media machine coiled out there to strike to get the work on a story when when it happens they will all leap you may remember that when the monica story broke the anchors had gone to cuba the pope was coming to cuba and of course the the anchors and that, that's a great occasion and nothing happens on television unless the anchors are there so the anchors were all in cuba waiting for the pope to land and word came from Washington that somebody, ABC, I guess, had broken this story about the president and this uh, intern. And the anchors immediately pulled up, left the Pope, <laughs> run back to Washington. <laughs> they were wiping out the Pope. You know, that's the goodbye Pope. So long, Potif. <laughs> so then they're out. They're always ready to go. Now, uh... There's an, it's an enormous force of people, just in the press, uh, press side alone. At the this summer in, uh, in July, when the Republicans uh, had their convention in Philadelphia, I saw that they had uh, the convention had accredited fifteen thousand media people. Fifteen thousand, and on a story that everybody agreed was no story. <laughs> It had been settled in April when Bush sewed the thing up, and they'd had a gentleman's agreement. They weren't going to fight over what the Republican Party was and believed in. So everybody knew there was nothing to do in Philadelphia. And you think they could have done that with 5,000 people. (laughs) Well, 15, you've got 15 people, they make news, and they all descended on Philadelphia. And then finally, uh, you have the last thing that should be said about a consequence, an unpleasant consequence of this, is the rise of the so-called character issue. That a politician's character must now pass the test. I'm not sure who administers that test, but uh, I suspect it's the press feel they have a right to administer it and uh, why where did character come from why I I mean George Washington was a man of splendid character but I suspect that his after he was a slave owner he was probably well I don't want to talk about George Washington's character (laughs) but the assumption always was that a president was a mean piece of work And if he could smile and make people feel good about it, fine. But that wasn't his job. His job was to do a lot of uh, very difficult things and do them well. Um, I remember when World War II began, the military called in a lot of old officers who had been sent out to limbo because they didn't get along with people. And one of those called back to high duty was Admiral Ernest King, who had been for guts and sent shipped so far out to sea that <laughs> nobody remembered he was out there, except, I guess, uh, General Marshall or whoever was putting the thing together. And they had King. that would get him back here and make him chief of naval operations. And King had a wonderful line. He said, when war starts, they call for the sons of bitches. <laughs> and that's basically what, you know, that's, that sums up the whole me, uh, the whole uh, character issue for me. now I'm not going to uh, dilate tonight on the present election. Uh, there are worse things that could worse things than having two ordinary men contending for leadership of an immensely heavily armed power. twentieth century history. Uh, which I've seen a good deal, suggests it would be far worse having two great men competing for the job. So I'm going to end by simply saying that if your man loses, the media did it. (laughs) Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I am uh, authorized to accept questions for a while. Please wait for the mic, too. If anybody has a question. Sir.
2: Um, There's one group of people, economists would never target them. That's another economist. Why?
1: I'm sorry. I, I'm, I should tell you I'm deaf on one side, and an echo uh, g- gives me trouble.
2: I have the impression. I have the impression that
1: economists,
2: that included you, or say Mr. Rosenthal,
1: they would never target each other as their target. Why that is so? Why column, newspaper columnists won't attack each other? Be frank with each other? Oh, it's a boys' club, really. <laughs> Uh, no, uh, you have to, you know, it's like the, uh, the Senate is like that. Uh, you've got to live with these people. Uh, the senators, uh, uh, have uh, disagree violently on everything, and yet they've got to be then go down to the dining room and sit down at the same te- table and eat. Uh, I, you know, I, i can't think of anybody of of anybody who's done this uh who's you know had the <laughs> had the gall to come out and one newspaper columnist and attack another privately there's a lot of it there's a lot of joking about it there's a' as a, a conservative columnist named Robert Novak <laughs> who I have known for years and he's a wonderful- he was a wonderful reporter when I knew him anyhow he's become a conservative very conservative guy and and uh, He's pretty good at what he does. But he's known in the trade as the Prince of Darkness. (laughs) And uh, it's it's kind of a joke uh, in the club, but you wouldn't get that out of the club. You know, nobody would write. Do you think that is a good practice? Do I think it's good? Yeah, I I think uh, columnists are uh, of no great importance. (laughs) I uh, I read very few columns... uh, I mean, uh, your opinion of the election is just as good as my opinion. Why am I entitled to write my opinion in in the New York Times? Uh, Yours is just as valid as mine. And I I feel that way about most columnists. I say, well, it's all right. Uh, I urge my wife not to bother reading them. (laughs) I say, your opinion's as good as his. (laughs) That's all it is. Question. Sir. Uh, When you come back to Princeton, five years from now to review this same topic what do you think you'll be saying? Well I think uh, <laughs> five years is a long time in my life <laughs> I don't look ahead five years anymore I'm in the one year at a time stage of life but I uh I don't think things are going to get better uh, you know I think the, the way the country is going now well, it's, we're going to have to have some big event to disrupt everything and reorganize the culture slightly slightly considerably but I think uh, the culture is pretty well uh, found it's uh, what do I want to say I don't want to say milieu but it's found it's found its identity and uh, it's plunging ahead. I looked at the uh, I looked at the New York Times today. They had a, a special supplement about magazines, and I counted 168 magazine covers on there, and it didn't include all of them. And almost all of them were magazines of no value, no real, not much to do with public life. They were, you know, they were about indulging your private. Uh, Passions and pastimes, hobbies. The country is very rich and soft. And uh, this is what presidential candidates probably ought to be talking about, is what do we want to be like five years from now? But I wouldn't expect to hear it. Um, You commented on how advertising drives what we hear in the media or read, but also there's been a great
0: deal of mega-mergers. And years ago, you weren't allowed to have a certain number of newspapers or radio stations and that, but now you can. And. Would you comment on the effects of that powerful
2: influence of one company owning newspapers, well, radio, and television? I
1: think it's dreadful to have Walt Disney owning <laughs> owning a news resource uh, as, as powerful as what's the ABC network, at least. That's terrible. Uh, um, I mean, the uh, opportunities for conflict of interest, uh, don't, you don't even have to point them out. They're so obvious. I mean uh, you you watch Good Morning America now and then you'll always see him plugging some Disney show or some Disney project it's, and but the the thing is that they don't want to take risks to cover the news if you go back to the great age of television news and lord, they were good you know first with Ed Murrow who had to fight Bill Paley all the way and didn't last long Paley said ed it's just too expensive I can't that you do it. The, the minute's worth too much now. Uh, but you go back to Vietnam. I mean, that's uh, I think the Vietnam War was probably the high point of all television and news history. They were magnificent. You know, they brought that war into your parlor every night just while you were waiting for the potatoes to boil. Here was, you were at the front with people being shot and things burning up and people screaming. And then uh, it, was wonderful. it was a wonderful experience because as soon as they'd have that and then they'd cut to the commercials. I remember one night they'd had something particularly awful from Vietnam and they instantly cut to a commercial and there was Joe Namath wearing black pantyhose <laughs> and it so aptly expressed <laughs> the variety of the American mind. And then they'd go to something else, you know, stomach acid. Uh, at that time of evening, they'd, they'd deal with the aches and pains, the aging, constipation, and so forth. All of these things were were elevated to problems of the first magnitude right after this hideous business in Vietnam. But the the guys who were in Vietnam were just absolutely wonderful. And uh, they're never going to be allowed to do that again. And nobody would push them to do that because they took a lot of heat for it. And these people who now own these things don't want people. They don't want expense, first of all. It costs money to send correspondents out there. You know, they're looking at bottom lines for the news operation. They give us some guy who can get the price down. And the quick way to get price down is to cut personnel.
2: You um, spoke about the media um, controlling what we uh, say and do. I happen to agree. Last night, um, Ralph Nader was here, and he mentioned the same kind of influence where we're losing losing, uh, control. You mentioned we hear nothing about uh, Sri Lanka and India. Uh, There's a radio program, 1 a.m. to 5 a.m., called Coast to Coast AM, uh, purportedly um, getting input from people about... Uh, news stories uh, happening that's not filtered through the media, as you are saying. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also reminded of a a book, Empower the People, by um, um, that columnist on Saturday morning. The black uh, person, uh, Tony, uh, Tony Brown. He's, he mentions the Illuminati, the destruction of uh, democ- democracy and the control. If you have any um, idea about the Illuminati or have, if you've read his, his, his book or something along the oligarch line, could you comment on where we're headed as a consequence of this tremendous control being isolationist and the effect of that on humanity, actually. Thank you.
1: Well, I don't know. I have not read those. I'm not familiar with those books. Since retiring from being a wise man, I've enjoyed uh, becoming slowly ignorant all over again. I haven't read that, but I think uh, I don't know. I, uh, I don't know where we're going, uh, what the result is going to be. All I know is what I that I feel uh, uh, some kind of turmoil all the time. I can't and there's something pecking at me something that won't leave you alone it's gouging at you you know, go out and buy something buy a car do this, guy, do this, do that there's this, and I think that's I think it suffuses the entire culture if you have a culture which exists to buy and, and buy things and doesn't seem to have any higher, any more interesting purpose Now, that's got to be wrong. Individuals have, everybody has some impulse in him to do something, uh, something uh, interesting even, or in some cases something wonderful. But you don't feel it. There's no, it's not in the air. You know, there's nobody who makes you feel good. I remember years ago, Walter Lippmann once saying, President of the United, I don't know, I think Walter Lippmann was the greatest pundit ever, but he was good now and he said and he said the President of the United States must be like a great orchestra leader. He so he takes all of these disparate instruments and brings them together and if he's good he makes music. He makes the country make music. And there's some there's rare rare presidents have that ability. Uh, but we don't seem to get that now.
3: Um, do you think there's great variety in what's covered in the news nowadays, you know?
1: There's a great variety in what's covered? No, that's the point I was trying to make was the world is, there's so many wonderful stories that we don't cover. Uh, Somebody mentioned Sri Lanka, the, uh, there's stories everywhere. The uh, situation in Burma, it's been a nightmare for years. What's, you know, um the economic story, uh, economics story uh, economics i'm here under the auspices of the economic department but but, but most reporters in washington uh, don't know any economics and economics is usually in washington much more important than politics and uh, they don't know it so they they don't like to cover it but you can—it's always, always fun to cover politics. You know, it's the horse race story—who's ahead in the race—and uh, they all know politics. They've hung out with politicians, and, and uh, so here you have this whole rich area that ought to be covered, and it's—it's it's covered very poorly. I will say of the uh, of the musty old times, which I still read, it's—it's it's been pretty good on. Some, some of its economic coverage lately, but generally washington coverage is is pathetic when it comes to covering economic stories of economic importance and that is Washington I mean what is government except cutting the pie
2: i 'm interested in your view about uh, new technologies making generating news. Uh, uh, less expensive. And can you imagine a time when, for example, on the Internet, there will be places where you can get very serious news unabridged and without reporters' opinions. And it's
1: just a matter of searching the Internet for it. Those places may exist now for all I know. I, I'm, uh, if I want something off the Internet, I commission my wife who's very good uh, she can do that I'd, I've never had time to learn it I find it takes a lot of time to just learn the skill and I, can't, I couldn't find out if it's there I'll, Mimi do you, have you found any there must be places You know, we get, she gets uh, uh, occasionally if I need something uh, she'll find something in the London press she can get off the internet so there's plenty of this stuff there if you know how to get it. But I suspect that most of us aren't going to be bothered to get it. You know, we want to be served, I guess.
0: Let's say one more question.
1: Okay.
3: You're the winner. There, oh, thank you. This, this Actually, I'm going to sneak in with two. The first one was what you think of national public radio and if they are included in your, uh, in your is rather than your media are. And the second one is... I have been looking around and I kept waiting and waiting for all the students to come, you know, racing in uh, at the last minute and I don't see very many. Last night there were a lot listening to Ralph Nader who made a very, very big point of saying please, most of you are 20 years old, do more with your life than provide yourself with a good lifestyle. And if you were writing right now, what would you be saying? about somebody like Ralph Nader, who has made his life sort of, I don't know that much, I don't pretend to, but of trying to make things, as you have been discussing them, better for all of us.
1: Well, NPR first, uh, yeah, of course it's part of the media. The, The media, what I think of as media isn't all on the downside and they do a lot of good stuff on NPR, but there's no budget. You know, Jim Lehrer, uh, if you watch the Jim Lehrer show every night, uh, he's got a couple of guys, some think tanks in Washington. He's in Washington. They make a phone call. Got a guy who's going to come over and say it's good, and the other guy's going to say it's bad. And then it goes on for 15 minutes, and they say, we'll have to leave it there and go to the next thing and do it all over. <laughs> and, uh, they just don't have the money. Uh... If they go out of Washington, it's over to Arlington, Virginia. And that's that exhausts their budget. I sometimes think Jim looks like he's operating on a budget of about $39.99. So there's no money there for it. It ought to be better than it is. It's good. It's good. I mean, it's something, right? But it ought to be better. About Nader, uh, I'm a, a Nader. I agree with you. He's a splendid fellow. And... Uh, He's done a lot of wonderful things. I don't think he's a, it's the nature of politics. He's not a plausible candidate right now. And I suppose it's regrettable that people like Nader are not plausible candidates. But why that is so would take more time than I think we ought to spend tonight. So I suppose it's probably the media's fault.